haere atu rā e koro ki te paipai o matāriki o rehua. Haere atu rā. E tiwi whakapuri mai whakatata mai, nau mai hoki mai anō ki a te ahi kā, ko maraia rakrakua hau. E haere ake nei, in the celebrity-driven world we live in, relationships, affairs, marriages often eventuate when acting spills over into real life. So, how does it feel when you're acting as a couple falling in love and are already in a relationship and in love. That's just one of the scenarios that emerged for Jamie McCaskill and Carly Korpai starring in He Reo Aroha. That's up first this week. And we're Kahununu Strong. Lisa Tuhi joins us talking about a series of hui informing Komatua and through them, marae about the role of the coronial office. Mara Te Kahike comes from a proud musical whakapapa. Yep, he's the boy of Billy TK, the maestro of guitar solo, he's up. And Buck is back with Charlie Leaf. Ko te mea tuatahi. Know what a triple threat is? That's how playwright Media George describes fellow playwright Jamie McCaskill, whom she collaborated with to write He Reo Aroha, the Māori contribution to honouring theatre, the Indigenous Travelling Festival. I'm talking with Media George. Kilda. And Jamie McCaskill. Kilda. They're the writers, and Jamie's also appearing in He Reo Aroha. Hi. Is it the first time you've worked collaboratively? Yeah. Yep. Yep, definitely the first time we've worked collaboratively. Collaborative, <laughs> collaboratively. We've known each other That's for a few right. years now, though. It's the first time we've come together and worked together. Yeah, Jamie was. Um, Jamie performed in my very first play with um, Jason Tikari. And that was Oho... Ohoaki, and they were amazing. They were amazing. And oh, it was an amazing play. And then he'd been writing... Still one of my favourites. Yeah. Still one of my favourite plays that I performed in. It was, he was crazy. <laughs> <laughs> so crazy. Crazy. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so, but is this the first gig that you've, you've had where you've actually written with another writer? I've collaborated with somebody else in my last play. It's a whānau thing. Yeah, this is my second time I've collaborated with somebody. Are you like a numerous writer performer and your own stuff, eh? Creating your own work. <laughs> <laughs> that's the only way I've got to act, you know? I've got to write to put myself on the stage. Honestly, that's why I started writing, to put myself on the stage. There's nobody else going to give me the work. So. And it works, eh? Yeah. You're good at working. Yeah, totally got it works. down. You saw him tonight. Yeah, yeah. He's a star. <laughs> oh, shush. But he's multi-talented. I think that's why you're so lucky. To... Well, you're not lucky, but <laughs> it's, not, it's not luck. You know, chum, chum. Channeling all those different characters. Yeah. What do you What do you call it? Like a three. What's that? Triple threat. Triple threat. Acting, musician. That's what some of the audience were saying last night. Yeah. Triple threat, man. Ah, oh, you got to do it. Eh? <laughs> I love music. I love music, and I love stories, and I love performing. So how does it work? I understand that you each wrote your scenes apart. Yeah, that's how we did it. And but we, before we started writing, we um, met down at the office, also known as the pub, a lot, <laughs> and um, and just tried to plot out our like our key characters' stories. So we kind of knew what journey we were going to go on, and then we'd go away and we'd do writing, and then we'd come back and we'd meet up again. Yeah, yeah. We'd always meet up. Yeah. So we we nutted out the whole story before we separated ourselves and went and wrote each story and um, yeah I wrote Pasco's story and media wrote, wrote Kaya's story 
Yeah. And when did you have to start dumping stuff? <laughs> what are you talking about? It came out perfect. Um, every time from the word go, it yeah. was an idea, dump it, idea, dump it. So it was a, it was a nice process. Yeah. <clears throat> As a writer, for me, I haven't really done that kind of thing before. Mm. I haven't been so impressed about the script. I yeah. can I can do it and then get notes from Honey and then dump it and then come back. So I've been I've really enjoyed that process as a writer. I think it could be me getting a little bit older and a little bit wiser when it comes to the craft of things, you know, not being so precious about things. Yeah. Mm. It was it was a really easy process actually, and I think mm. cause, because you know, Jamie and I have been involved in a project creatively before and you know, I just know I'm from being around and then having Huni there as well and then meeting with Carly as well it was a really safe group to work in and like Jamie was saying to not get precious about about your writing and that we would get notes and then we'd go away and then we'd just just go for it again and we chucked out so many different scenarios so, so many, many different scenes so many. they've had so many lives the, yep. these characters yep. there yep. were so many characters that we chucked out the door as well yeah heaps of characters are gone yeah, that's right. Yeah, when you, I was thinking about it today yeah. and I thought, wow. I've kept those all in my files so I can go back and have a look. I really want to have a look at the first script we wrote. Oh, well. And have a look. No, no I'll, go, I'll probably cringe when I look at it. <laughs> yeah, give yourself a Friday. <laughs> now, what about the music? How how did that all work? Because music is such a strong feature of Hereo Reo Aroha. Um, I guess whenever I write a play, I always want to have live music. And so I'll write... And what, this is the only way to guarantee you don't need to pay for rights? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. And then I get paid. So that's, that's pretty cool. Um, so in the process of this one, I wrote a couple of songs. Carly's written, Carly, the other performer, has written her own songs as well. Um, we're also working with a uh, um, songwriter named Hone Huriangenui, and he's written a couple of waiata for the, for the show as well. Uri Uri in the first duet in the, in the play. And, um, yeah, it's a collaborative process with the music as well. Are there additional challenges when you're acting in something that you've written, or is it easier? Oh, I, think, I think there's a, um, a line you have, to, you have to put on yourself. As a writer, you, you write, 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 and you got real cl- you're real close to the project. But when I knew I set myself a date when we were going to start rehearsals, so that's when I said to myself, I won't start. I'll stop writing now. Honey, we had a deadline to finish the script, so we start. Stop writing. And that's Honey Coca. Yep, that's Honey Coca. And um, that's when I took off my actor's cap and put on my acting tights. And then when it comes to any changes in the script, it's Honey's, Honey's decision. And if he wants me to rewrite, I'll rewrite. But when it, I won't get precious about anything when I'm a performer because I'm, all I'm doing is concentrating on the acting. Hereo Aroha traces a relationship between a woman and a man. How much of real life stuff did you end up putting into the script? <laughs> Well, for me personally, I, I used to work on the fishing boats when I was um, before I got into the um, performing arts. So um, the story of Pasco being a fisherman is quite embedded in me, so it's quite easy to <laughs> easy to write <laughs> life. Yeah, what about what you know? Yeah, and that's really funny because I'm not a musician <laughs> and I don't have a singing background, and I didn't go to. Commonwealth Song Quest in London <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know any Catholic nuns <laughs> I've got a cousin called Maria hi Maria but um, 
it was just, yeah, just kind of drawing from Fano and, and friends and, and all their dramas. And all their dramas, that's it. And just going from there. Now, the other person involved in the project is Carly Kopai. Okay, so Carly, how did you get involved in the project? Well, I actually go out with the writer. I'm the girlfriend of, Media. of the. Media. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, yes, actually. No, <laughs> I go out with Mr. Jamie McCaskill, and we've been going out for like a year and a half now. And he kind of just had this idea with Midia and Honey was approached to you know write this show, and brought me on board to be the second second wheel. <laughs> yeah, so that's how I got involved. So what's it like working with your Tani? Like working with him? <laughs> it's actually really good. We've only had one one little, you know, fighty thing. And that was only a few days ago and it was about something pathetic, like I wasn't playing the music right. I wasn't coming in on course. time. <laughs> I told her and then she said But no, it's good because you can be you're so comfortable with, you know, knowing each other so well that you can just say anything and you know that it's not gonna be you're not going to offend him. Used against you when you go home. Yeah. But the most uncomfortable yeah. bit in the show we've discovered is the kiss. It's the kiss. The kiss. Yeah. I can't kiss him. I just, it's, oh, I just, it feels weird. weird. Mm. Kissing is well, weird. It feels like you're kissing Pascu. Yeah, it does. Yeah. It's like, oh, I'm cheating on my boyfriend eh? with my boyfriend. <laughs> 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 Why can't someone tell me what we're fighting for? Why can't someone tell me what we're fighting for? Why can't someone tell me what we're fighting There's for? There's no telling how it did that. Why People can't uh, uh, come along to the Honouring Theatre Festival in Auckland. We'll be playing at this Telstra Pacific Centre in Monaco from the 22nd to the 27th of June. Come along. There's no telling how it did that. People pick up strange things that they see. We all choose our own path carefully. Atahua Nera. Years ago, I remember when actress Meg Ryan was acting in a film with her then-husband, Dennis Quaid, and they were shooting love scenes, and she would say to him, stop kissing me as Dennis. And I think we have plenty examples of acting spilling over into real life too, eh? Anyway, Hereo Aroha is entertaining, and as you heard there, them fellas can sing. Jamie McCaskill no Ngāti Maru me Ngāti Tamatera. Kali Kōpai no Ngāti Whakaue me Te Arawa, and Media George Kuki Airani and Te Arawa. The waiata you heard there was an original composition by Jamie McCaskill, Call to a River. Next week, more from Honouring Theatre. Hear how a play written 12 years ago, using the Wounded Knee Occupation in 1973 as its setting, resonates for Aotearoa in the raids of October 2007. And how an Indigenous Australian woman sharing her life story creates a space that liberates other Indigenous. Whanganui Atara has been going off over the past week to the Kapahaka Kura, the National Secondary School Performing Arts Competition, and the streets have been heaving with Nga Tauira o Te Motu. Go to our website, we have some details there, as we do every week, of the content that is broadcast on Te Ahikaa.
Kahununu have actively sought a way of ensuring their iwi are informed and aware of matters in relation to tangihana and to pāpaku. My name's Lisa Tuhi. I affiliate to Ngāti Hinemanu, uh, Ngaitu Pokoiri and Ngāti Mahuika. Um, my marae are Omahu, Tiafina and Runanga. And whereabouts is that, Lisa? Uh, that's in Ngāti Kaunganu, and we're on the outskirts of um, Hiritonga. Our kuia and kaumatua have asked for a hui to meet uh, the coroner for this district, which is the Tairawhiti district, from Gisborne all the way down to Wellington, Wairarapa included, uh, and Mr Davenport, that's his rohi. What they wanted to do was meet him. They just wanted to have a chat and, and get to know one another. Because I, I think um, the the approach is, because the, this coronial office is a new initiative, apparently it was a part-time position uh, done through law firms, but now it's, this position has been created to service the Tairawhiti region. And it's here, I think he, Devonport is one out of 15 uh, newly appointed coroners to the coronial office. Right, so is this the first time that he's going to be hitting the marae, is it? The idea is for him to get out and meet as many people as he can and when our, see our, our nannies and kuros are quite um, socially active too. <laughs> yeah, and the, <clears throat> they, they've picked up on uh, wanting to meet him and, it, and that's what it's all about. It's just uh, relationships and getting to know one another and how we each work. People just want to be assured that their two papaku or their loved one hasn't been, um, you know, altered or uh, any body parts have been uh, taken without their consent or knowledge, you know, that sort of thing. I think it's an education thing too. Uh, we don't know what he does. He doesn't know what, what, how we feel. So at the end of the day, uh, what better forum for making policy than in front of your nannies and kuros and um, who have to have, you know, they bear the... Oh, I, would, I don't want to call it burden, but they bear the responsibility of holding the whānau together in those sorts of situations. And uh, what, what better for him than to speak to the guy himself? Because he, he can probably allay a lot of um, concerns as well. And so, yeah, there's the education in itself. I don't know how many in his team, but I know that there's, um, there's a move to attach the coronial office to the Māori Land Court. So I'd like to do, you know, to do with Ngātake Māori. I'm not too sure how far progressed it is, but that's what I've heard so far. I think it's been serviced by um, the Ministry of Justice at the moment. OK, so this is the first hui that's going to be happening in Heretainga. Yep. And then you're one of three marae. This is for Te Awhina marae. That's right. Uh, there was one held with... Um, at Waipatu, um, because we've had, we've tried to get the coroner here, but we've just had a string of tangi, and our nanny and kuros are just so busy um, holding the fort, and um, it's just come to fruition now. The um, another another good point that um, I might be able to mention is the just getting to know our um, our police officers. And um, I've invited uh, John Tangaidi, the 
Māori liaison officer for the police uh, for Ngāti Kaunganu. And um, it's just getting the getting them to front up to these hui to allay our whānau of those concerns. Because I know that a lot of um, a lot of whānau have concerns when it comes to situations like this. When, what do you mean? Like um, we had one 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 couple stand up and tell their story about their son, how they um, how he was after the accident. He had he had to be left untouched for something like six hours until the coroner came to, you know, to um, attend to him. And um, the family who turned up before him, before the coroner, um, managed to influence and, and convince the police to let them take him back to the marae, just as a, oh, to one of the homes. Now, see, uh, once that was done, the family couldn't... Well, once, once the, the body was touched and he was moved from the site, he couldn't be um, processed. Had the coroner been there and accessible and um, spoken to, say, like a family spokesperson, yeah, there's just that knowing and that education around those, those sorts of situations. What has happened... As a result, that that family can't actually have a um, they can't get a, a medical certificate for him, you know, like a death certificate certifying that he's actually deceased, because no one will declare it because he, the body was moved. Or... But the, the, these are the sorts of things that uh, we need to learn about ourselves as a whānau. I guess the thing is a. Um... I'm talking with Elisa Tuhi. I guess the thing, Elisa, eh, is that um, having more coroners spread throughout the country will enable them to travel faster. Yeah, or to places if, if they could educate the whānau and vice versa, and just narrow that gap. Hey, eh, that gap, and um, I think the process would work if we had. Um, and if it was evened up and there was more talking and communication. And that's where the police actually comes in. I, the, um, I might be generalising here, but I think the police need to play a bigger role uh, with the, um, the likes of the coroner's office as well. Why do you think that? Well, I only say that in, uh, in, in like that situation I just explained to you, had the police explain to the whānau, or had they realised that, no, the, this, this, you know, their, their son can't be moved unless this guy signs him off, sort of thing. Um, I think it's all, yeah, it's, it's education, and we need to be, um, you know, the, the awareness needs to be put out there. And if we could, if we could sit down face-to-face with um, Pete Davenport, and just say to him, well, this is how we feel as, as a whānau hapu. I think, um, I think we'd, we'd be more, what do you call it, would be more likely to... Be more receptive? Yeah, be more receptive. Um, the environment would... Because in that sort of environment, in that situation, things are quite um, clinical or hostile or, you know, emotions are going. And I think with education and awareness, 
we can we can pull that in, but it's just um, well, it, as I say before, that education that uh, you know we're learning and we're willing to learn, and that relationship we're willing to to say to Mr. Davenport, um, can we talk to you? And he'll go, yeah, yeah. What's the problem? You know, we can ask him anything we want. And I've, I've met him before, and he's he's cool. He's really cool. So, yeah. are you are you hoping that these hui with the coroner will be ongoing? Oh, definitely. Because um, even if we had the, um, you know, our local undertakers like um, Uncle Money Neho and his service. I think if we um, we break down the mystery uh, with um, a coroner, you know, well, what does he do? You know, it's I think it's all all good. And when I look at um, you know the um, the incidents, I see a high incidence in our um, Tamariki Māori, our Mokopuna, and that's um, yeah, that's a really big issue. So the information that's going to come through as a result of the hui with the coroner, mm-hmm. how's that going to get filtered down to the wider whānau? To the wider whānau? Um, well, if we, if, we, um, if we like look at ourselves and ask ourselves like for, I think the answers are there within us and uh, I think we're the, the best policy makers you know, like ourselves, and uh, with the guidance and um, from the the nannies and the kurus and the the whanau, I think the wider whanau will it'll filter out naturally. The information will like um, I've I've spread the word around about the meeting the coroner. Now, whoever is going to turn up tomorrow. They're going to take that and they're going to pass it along the Kumaravine. You watch. And that's how things, that's how the word will get out. And, um, you know, they're going to turn up to the suite and they're, going, they're probably going to invite uh, Mr. Davenport to, to their marae and hold another hui. One of the key aspects is matching the coroner's needs with tikana Māori. And that's why the nannies and kurors need to be at the forefront to guide him, because he's going to need their help. Um, and um, you know, in dealing with things, tikanga Māori. Or just just going back to the um, the wider whānau, though, because we have our cluster networks, we have our three marae sitting down together and talking to each other. Um, they each have a population, and so. With that, um, with their community and their population, um, we actually get together on uh, we're we're Te Haro reps. Uh, we've got a um, like a network of seventeen marae in Hiritonga, and we come under the um, we form the Hiritonga Taifinua. Okay, so that's uh, that's the bigger, wider network. I've actually I sit at a, a table with sixteen other marae. And I share that information. Now, I'll probably get their whānau and their wider community coming to the hui. 
Lisa Tuhi talking to me a few weeks ago about a planned hui with the newly established regional coroner, and the process she describes there is one many iwi, hapu and marae utilise. His father, Billy Tikahika, Billy TK, has had a prolific music career, playing with a who's who of Māori musos for well over mm, about 40 years, and now Mara Tikahika is making a name for himself, and listen up, his music is lovely. Here he is, and he's a whanaunga too, Ngāti Pahuera represent, ke te kōrero ia ki a Melody Thomas. Tēnā rākoutou katoa, ko aura ki te maunga, waitaki te awa, takitimu, Uruao Kuwaka, Maitahu Nati Kamunu, Nati Pahura, Okuibi, Kumara, Tipateka Ikatini, Tenako. No peace you'll find in hatred, time's wasted and the end is nigh. Some live their lives trapped inside an ignorant and fearful mind. Their prejudice leaks from swollen seams and bleeds a million insecurities. You don't have to be lonely if you only let it go and reach out for it. Reach out for it. Where did you grow up? Um, I had an interesting childhood. I grew up on the road, basically. Um, my my father's a, um, a guitarist, my mother's a singer. Who's your dad? And my, my dad's name is Billy T. Cave. Um, your mum? And my mother's name is Moana Tipper, and they met each other uh, through music. My mother singing backup vocals for him. Um, and they fell in love and had a child and um, took that child everywhere they went on the road. Um, but I guess Waiheke Island was a base for us in, in Auckland, um, though I saw most of the country by the time I was a couple of years old. It, it was an interesting upbringing because of uh, the people I, I was exposed to, um, because they were all going through some fairly heavy stuff at that time in terms of kind of finding who they were and um, trying to make a, a living out of music, which in the in the 70s and 80s, 90s was pretty darn hard in, in this country. So, um, yeah, it, it was interesting and I, um, I'm thankful for all of it. Yeah. Some musicians and I grew up um, playing guitar and, and singing with my mother and um, got into DJing and production when I was about 16 um, and kind of got heavy into the DJ scene um, for a long time and then was was producing tracks and flicking them off to other vocalists to do and I, I started thinking Gee, why can't I? Why can't I do this all myself? Why? Why do I need to palm it off to other people and hope that they kind of go in the same direction that I'm that I'm looking for? So, um, 
I, I brought a microphone and I, I thought, gee, I'll, I'll give it a go. I'll start recording my voice and see what happens. Um, and started off um, fairly hopeless in, in terms of technical ability of the singing, you know. But there, there was something, there was something there. So started developing that, and um, and then for some reason uh, the same thing happened with guitar, and I ended up going back to going to jazz school um, for guitar and and trying to develop that as well. So that's that's the stage that I'm at now is um, developing my musicianship. Um, which is fairly early days, but um, yeah, it all, it all moves in circles in, in terms of um, places that you're at. And um, I guess for the last couple of years, I've been in that space, the the musical uh, musicianship space, and I think I'm it's coming around again. You know, I can feel um, the pulls of of DJing and 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 production kind of. Coming, coming back again, so, yeah. Oh, our season's done This place is empty cycle did Red Bull Music Academy for him? Um, Red Bull happened at the end of last last year um, and I guess I was yeah right smack bang in the middle of um, middle of an interesting time I just moved to Wellington and um, met some really great people who I've who I formed a, a group called Electric Wire Hustle with um, he he kind of spurred me on to um, apply for the academy, and um, for some reason I, I I got in and went and did that, and um, yeah, just came back with a with a whole other perspective, um, and I'm in a I'm in a new place um, as a direct result, you know, um, just the the genres of of music that it. Um, expose me to. There's going to be some people listening who first off don't know how impossibly hard it is to get into Rebel Music Academy and so what an awesome accomplishment it was which I just had to point out there for you and the second thing they probably don't know what it what it is so could you just tell us what the experience was and what you did? Okay basically they um they select 60 participants from all around the world um they fly them over, put them up in a beautiful hotel. Um, uh, this time it was Toronto, but it's it's in a new location every year. I think um, this year it's in um, Barcelona, Spain. Um, but they've been all around the world. Um, started in Germany. Um, they've gone to Rome, uh, New York, London. Um, where else? Seattle. Yeah, this this um, in my term it was in Toronto, 
um, at the end of last year. Um, and basically they, they bring together a whole bunch of people, um, build some studios and an exhibition space, um, bring in lectures, which are basically um, a whole lot of people who have, who have been making music for a long time. Um, in, in, the, in the electronic music vein, which is um, broad, which is kind of infinitely broad in itself. But um, so they bring in people to lecture, lecture us every day, which is basically just our idols talking about their lives and uh, their upbringings and musical histories. Um, and then we get to get in the studio with them and um, and make music for two weeks and go out and get completely out of it and <laughs> into it at the same time. Yeah. It must be pretty hard jumping, you know, in front of a microphone with an idol, as you name them, sitting there behind the desk. Yeah. Well, I, I had a f fairly crazy experience. Um, a guy called Omas Keith, which is from a, a group called Sarah, um, who I've looked to uh, looked up to for for a long time, um, kind of in the future soul beats kind of vein of things. Um, they're on U Ubiquity Records, but um, there was a point where um, he was asking me what I wanted to do. Uh, in the studio, which is is kind of strange. One of your idols asking, um, "What do you want to do today? What, what would you like to do here? I'm I'm all yours." So it was it was fairly overwhelming and exciting and amazing. The rush afterwards, I can imagine you'd have to go out and get a mug of beer. Yes, a mug of beer, <laughs> something like that, to kind of calm the nerves. But unfortunately, there were a couple of. Um, instances where I'd had a mug of beer and I'd um, decided to go and do some work and um, and I walk into the studio and there's somebody like that saying hey can you come and lay down a chorus for me and you've had a mug of beer and you don't want to stuff things up and um, yeah it's just a tad intimidating <laughs> so it doesn't, imp doesn't improve the performance the mug of beer Oh, I think it got me through, actually. It was the <laughs> thing that calmed the nerves. Music has, has caught, kind of always been there, whether I, whether I like it or not, and I, I do like it now, so it's, um, yeah, it's a blessing to be able to make music and um, have something to say. And I'm blessed to be making music, uh, period, whether it's um, working a job nine to five on the side or, or whatever, it doesn't matter. And, at the end of the day, um, we're not starving and um, we're not living in a, a, a mud hut with, with no running water 
Uh, you know, seriously. Um, so f we've we've got nothing to complain about in this country, really. Hmm, don't know about that, Emara. I know plenty fana who live at Rough. Hoya no Emara Maitahika. Mara tipatikahika. That piece was pulled together by Melody Thomas. Go to our webpage for details on his MySpace page and the Red Bull Academy scene. Last week, Buck Shelford talked with Charlie Leaf about his health concerns. This week, how the Navy set himself up for a career in rugby. The people I've been speaking to say that you were a hard worker and you eventually got to the All Blacks, and was that one of the reasons why? Well, I suppose, um, you know, I suppose the work ethic, when I went into the Navy, it was another outfit that New Zealand Navy was a place where you had to work hard. And it was, uh, you know, it was saturated with discipline, 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 you know, and and, uh, and sir, yes sir, no sir, three bags full sir, and uh, you know, compared to today where we're so PC, you can't do anything, you know, whereas back then you used to get a clip around the ear if you buggered something up and verbally abused by some somebody in the in the, in the service or got a smack, you know, with a bloody baton or something like that. But it doesn't happen today. And so the thing is, uh, you know, I don't do that either. I don't do that with my troops. But uh, we're the wrath of the, the warrant officer, you know, on the rugby, you know, he was on the rugby field with you or he's your coach. Man, you listened. <coughs> but all in all, it, it was a, it would come back to a lot of discipline. And uh, I played for the New Zealand Navy for five years, played combined service for quite a few years as well. And uh, we won because we were so disciplined. You know, and that's we put. We were never the biggest side when we went to services against the police and the and the army. We were never the biggest side, but man, do we have discipline, do we have heart, and uh, you know our name in the navy teams, and it still is today. They get they get called the pygmies because we're so small. You know, I used to be the biggest in the team, but that discipline went through, and and that discipline in the navy, that discipline went over to my football, and. Um, well, I was quite ill-disciplined, I suppose, in some respects to my football in my early days, but then if I wanted to actually go any further, I had to curb all the, the irrationalities of, of head-high tackles and smacking a few guys and lots of this stuff. And uh, from there, I actually moved on and I started making it into the rep side. Well, I did make the rep sides anyway, but I had to make it to the next step, you know, into top rep football. I had to curb a lot of those, uh, those little nasty things that I used to do and then moved on, yeah. In uh, Aotearoa, especially among our people, the Māori people, uh, you were a great leader. Was this the reason why? Well, I, I don't really know, you know. I just I just tend to be probably a person who leads by example. And uh, you talk about the hard work. Well, if you want to make it somewhere, you've got to work hard to get, get anywhere. It doesn't come easy. People think, some young people today think you got that because, you know, you're an all black. You didn't get it because you're but you got it because you've worked hard all your life. And so the thing is, you haven't wasted your putier on other things. You know, people say to me, why do you drive around that old truck? He says, because I like my old truck and I don't need a new one. You know, my wife goes around a little wee car and, you know, she's she's always happy with that because it just zaps around the city. But all our, you know, a lot of our friends, they have the, the big BMWs and the big Mercedes-Benz and something. Well, that's not me, you know. And so the thing is, I'm a practical person, I have a practical vehicle that does a practical job. And so the thing is, I'd rather spend my money, have my money in the bank, and invest it, or invest it in projects with my children, try and help them to get ahead, uh, try and get them to their homes, and, and so the thing is, because that's what we work for, to make sure our, we try and get our heads, kids ahead as well. 
and uh, many parents can do it, a lot can't. And saying so is, uh, I think uh, I'm not saying that it's wrong, but uh, at the end of the day, uh, you know, there's a lot of us, a lot of our people, you know, spend a lot of time drinking. They're at the pub a lot, and saying so is uh, nothing left for the food table, nothing left, you know, for the kids that go to school with, and our kids are going to school hungry, and I, I think that's a bad example, bad role models. What do you say to to the kids less fortunately now the kids but the parents aren't such a good role model what what do you say to them Well I think that uh, for many of our kids uh, they see all the the big things out the big picture things out there and and saying is but they don't know how to get there it's just you know, and our people you know they're a bit fucking up you know they get shy and don't ask and you've got to be more proactive in your your um, Especially when, once you leave school, you've got to be really proactive in, in, in what you want to do and where you want to go. Because you know, we all have, have dreams. And saying is the realisation of the dream comes through seeking it and working hard to get there. And it might take you five years, it might take you ten years, but you realise your dream. You know? And uh, many of those people say, if you shoot for the stars, you'll reach the moon. And um, we see, I see a lot of our youth, and uh, I try to get a lot of, you know, I talk a lot about youth who are very unsure on what they're trying to do, is go into the military. Go into the military. They will give you plenty of direction. They'll give you a lot of discipline, a lot of direction, but then they will give you the tools. If you were there one year, two years, three years, four years, five years. And, uh, well, my son's in there now, and he's... Um, he joined at 18, he didn't know what he wanted to do, he's a qualified chef, he's done his diving papers, so he's a diver now down to 30 metres, he wants to carry on doing that, he wants to change over, he wants to be a phys ed teacher, and then possibly down the line he wants to, to, to study, he'll be a, a sports nutritionist. So he's got two backgrounds that he can work off to get there, and so is, at the same time he's having a ball, doing what he wants to do, you know. And uh, you know, for our young people, they just get a bit... But fuck them are more than they're shy to step forward to be able to do this. I think they are not educated enough to be there. And so the thing is, um, unless you try, you'll never know. Well, I appreciate that you want to help our rangatahi, but you're a young man um, fronting the All Blacks. And w what I wanted to uh, talk about was uh, you're, you're leading the All Blacks and, and the haka. Just step us through how it, how it felt for you leading the, uh, best, the best team in, in the world at the time in the haka. Well, I suppose, uh, you know, I didn't have much background in uh, Kapahaka when I was young. Uh, I didn't see a lot of it. I used to go out to, um, to Oho where Ngātarangauiwi was and, you know, we used to watch them performing. Um, used to see them every now and then. But then when I went into the service, Kapahaka's quite strong in the service. And, and so then as I, I ended up, my wife and I went into it, uh, uh, jumped into it early because my wife was you know, very pro Māori and uh, was an excuse to get off work as well, I suppose, for us Māori. <laughs> but, uh, and we used to perform in embassies around the world, you know, things like that, or go and do, you know, go and perform somewhere at a, at a cocktail party, you know. But um, uh, when I went into there, we made the All Blacks and, uh, and uh, the, the huck hadn't been done for a long, long time. It had never been done in New Zealand, but it hadn't been done overseas for a while either. And then a few of the guys said, "Shall we do the haka?" And and Hicka was in the team in the stage, you know, was at still at the same, same stage. And I said to Hicka, "Do you reckon we should should do it?" And he says, "Oh, you know, he was, but uh, couldn't be bothered with it, you know." 
anyway says, come on, come on, we'll, we'll do it. But we'll put it to the team. If they're going to do it, they're going to have to learn to do it properly. Otherwise, you know, it's, a, it's, it's, you know, it's basically putting a slander on our people. And so what we did is we, we put it to the team and they said, yeah, we're going to do it. We want to learn it and learn it properly. So we said to Hika, well, we do come at the assets. What are the actions? And he says, oh, no, we'll keep it simple, man. Keep it simple. These white fellas don't know what they're doing. They don't know where to put their hands or whatever it is. And, oh. So we done it. We kept it really, really simple. And, and between Hika and I, we, we talked about it with them, told them what it, you know, what it basically meant because they weren't really into it in a big way back then. And so we done that, and even some of the guys, I don't think they really enjoyed doing it, you know, because it wasn't them. Even though we know that some of them had Māori in them, and you know, they just lived the Pākehā life, you know. And so we got them to do it, and the boys really enjoyed doing it. So we just improved on it and improved on it. But then they realised how how good it was for them, how that you know you could be inspired from it, and and the inspiration that come out of doing the haka gave them the inspiration to go out there and fight on the on the, on the football field. But the emotions that ran, you know, something else, I think for Hicker and myself, the emotions ran more in the parkers than what it did in us, you know. And, uh, you know, our period was a successful period, um, not just because of the haka, but because of, of, of the way we played our football. And, uh, you know, there was many of the coaches worldwide wanting to get rid of it and ban it and things like that. And it still hasn't been banned to this day. And, and I think it's great that it's still there. And I, I think that irrespective of... If they tried to ban it, and either the ends or after you tried to ban it and say, we won't do it anymore, I reckon the players should just do it. Just go out there and do it. Even if it's not to them, do it to the crowd. Um, I know for a fact that the New Zealand Māori do different huckers, and saying so is, that's different, that's, that's Māori, that's true Māori. And saying so is, I've just, um, just recently just finished Matt the Poe's book that he wrote about his time there and the, um, how bringing these uh, young young boys into the team where they didn't know a lot about their backgrounds, their Māori backgrounds, their, 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 their whakapapas and all those things, they didn't know. But by the time they'd left, their, left that team and retired and gone overseas or something like that, what they got from that team was twice as much what they got from any team they ever played. Just just to conclude, um, that slogan went around and it's still going around New Zealand, bring back Buck. How, how, how did that make you feel when that... It, it's still going strong today. It, it's amazing what, what you've actually yeah. done out there for, uh, especially our people. I think that, uh, you know, it was quite... It was, it was, it's quite funny to see it, you know. For me, it's a bit of fun and, and seeing as... You know, it was started in, in, in Massey University down in... Uh, by the Massey University students down in the Palmerston North. And it still goes on today, and I've seen it around. I've seen it, and people have told me they've saw it at Wimbledon, they saw it over in South America, whatever it was. And I think that uh, that one slogan, you could tell that there's Kiwis in the crowd. You know, no matter what they put up there, hi, mum or dad, that could be anybody. But if you turn around and you put up that one slogan and bring back Buck, there's Kiwis in the crowd, you know? And so the thing is, I think it's quite funny. I think it's... Uh, it's It'll stay for a while. I think it'll be around for a long, long time. And uh, I keep saying to a lot of people, it's cost me a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it's, uh, I just think, some, you know, the people out there, 
you know, some of the people probably today don't realise what it means, but the people that were in that era and just after that era knew what it was all about. And so the thing is, probably knew there was injustice done. And so the thing is, so they just keep reminding the rest of the world that, you know, we want them back. And, you know, I'm here, but so the thing is, I won't be playing football anymore. In Māori, you know, you, you go around, no matter where you go in New Zealand, Māori is very, will always appreciate, come up to you and, you know, hongi you and, and, and hararu with you and, and basically want to call it all, you know, talk to you, you know, because they hardly see you, you know, going down the bottom of the South Island or something like that, uh, and Māori see you and they come up and say, oh, kia ora buck, you know, and, and, and so the thing is, they're just very interested, and so the thing is, um, you know, just to talk a little bit of rugby and my perspective of things, and, and so the thing is, oh, I think that's great, and so the thing is, I always give people the time, and, uh, and so the thing is, uh, you go sit around at tables at restaurants in certain places and people come up to you, and I think it's great, uh, you know, that they, they will never forget, and so the thing is, jeez, uh, anybody thought I fought in the bloody Mary Battalion, and... <laughs> But it was only rugby, and it shows you how much rugby means to our Māori people. I think being being the captain of the of the, the All Blacks in my era was the first time a Māori had been captain for for a long, long time. But oh, you know, in the back of my head all the time when we were playing, it was it was you were not just representing New Zealand; you were representing a people as well. The push is on from the All Blacks. Shelford holds it at the back. Good push, going right. Picked up by Shelford. The drive, it stopped. Goes to the ground. Picked up by Dean. Sends it out left to Fox. Fox looking for a gap. Fox picked past the right. Trying to Terry right. Shelford runs on the right on the open side. Goes to the ground. Jones and Wetton are there. Wetton picks it up. That's Alan Wetton. Barges on. Goes to the ground again. Set up for Jones. Jones just races straight through. Michael Jones behind the posts. I think our Māori people were... We're very, very proud that a Māori was leading New Zealand. And we were very successful at it too. Buck Shelford, Ngāpuhi Te Arua, talking with Charlie Leaf, Ngāpuhi. That interview can be reheard in its entirety at radionz.co.nz forward slash tiahika. That's our webpage. Haere atu rā ki te paipai o Matariki o Rehua. Haere, haere, haere atu rā. Farewell, go to the threshold of Matariki, of Rehua. Farewell. Last week, Tuharangi Kaumatua, Rangitupuru, Sydney, Sunny, Sewell passed away. 16 years old when he joined the Māori Battalion, Sewell was to become a key figure in arguing for the awarding of a Victoria Cross posthumously to Hane Manahi. While this action was unsuccessful, on the 17th of March 2007 at Te Papi Manahi was honoured with the presentation of a sword by the Duke of York, representing the Queen. It was Sewell who spoke on that matter. Haere atura e koro. That brings Tahika to an end. I'm Mariah Rakuraku. I'll be back to do this all again next week, and I'll be joined by a karaua from Horohoro, Bob Young, who takes us on a tour of some local landmarks at Horohoro. That's 16 kilometres heading towards Tokorua on the Rotorua Tokorua Highway. 
He mihi mahana ki nga kai kōrero i tēnei wiki. Ki taku hoa mahi a Kevin Golding, kia ora. Ki te whānau a kia ro marai, he mihi atu ki a koutou katoa. E te iwi, mai te ahi kā ki a tātou katoa, mauri ora.